0: Well, good morning, guys. Yeah, you can grab a seat. Thanks, Chris, for reading that. Um, My name is Brett. I'm the worship pastor on staff here, but today I have the privilege of continuing us through our series in Philippians, and today we're going to be in chapter 2, so I encourage you to open up our Bibles together and look at Philippians chapter 2. As you flip there, I want to start by asking us a question this morning, and that question is, Have you ever been seriously humbled? Have you ever been seriously humbled? I've talked with uh, some of you guys over the last few months, and it's clear that some of you are going through a season and a circumstance in life that's incredibly humbling. You're going through something in your life that's kind of taking everything you thought you knew about the world and about yourself, and it's shattering it into a thousand pieces. It's amazing to see how often God uses a hard, humbling circumstance in our lives to draw us close to himself. And that's true of my story. Um, growing up, I grew up in the church, but I didn't know the gospel. I thought that I was made right with God because I was a good person who did good things and had a good reputation. And... Uh, essentially, without really knowing it, I had grown proud of my accomplishments. I had grown proud of my reputation. And then at the age of 18, a couple things happened in my life that really shook up everything that I I thought I knew. Uh, My longtime high school girlfriend, she dumped me. She left me for another guy, and my parents went through a really tough divorce. And so, in that season, everything I knew about the world changed. I came to realize that maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Maybe my heart wasn't as pure as I thought it was. I was humbled to realize that I couldn't save myself by being a good person. I couldn't save myself by doing good things or having a good reputation. I was saved because of Jesus' work on my behalf, not my own record of good things done. And that's humbling. That's humbling to confess and to realize I've heard so many stories, similar stories from people like you in here this morning who God has used a humbling circumstance to draw you close to Himself. But here's the thing God doesn't stop humbling us after He saves us, right? Just a little over a year ago, about a year and I think two months, I entered into one of the most humbling circumstances of my life. I got married. I got married. And if you want to find out just how prideful or selfish you really are, get married and start sharing everything with another human being, right? God doesn't stop humbling us after he saves us. It seems like God is always in this process of bringing humility to bear in our lives. You see, humility is something that ultimately always finds us in life. No matter how hard you try to avoid it, you will be humbled. Rarely do we seek out humility. See, I want to be thought of as a humble person, but I don't really want to go through the process of being humbled. Here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul exhorts us, he says, choose humility. And if I had a a little catchphrase that I'd like you to leave with this morning, it's those two words, choose humility humility. We must choose humility. Choosing humility is hard in life, even even when things are going well. Even when life's firing on all cylinders, choosing humility is hard. It's even harder in the humdrum of just a taxing nine-to-five job that we can't stand. It gets even harder when you can't seem to get on the same page as your spouse, when you can't seem to get on the same page as your roommates. Or your coworkers. So how can we actually live this out? How can we actually choose humility when choosing humility is so difficult to do? That's what we're going to try to find out today. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 and see how we can choose humility. So let's start with our first point. The first thing that Paul encourages us toward this morning is to embrace humility. We must embrace humility. So let's start by reading verses 1 and 2 together. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See in verses one through two, Paul gives a rhetorical question of sorts. He asks the Philippians, in essence, Have you experienced encouragement in Christ? Have you experienced any comfort from love or any participation in the Spirit? Have you experienced with one another any affection and sympathy? And the obvious answer to this, the answer that the Philippians would have known, is yes. Yes, of course they have. And Paul would have known this firsthand. In Acts chapter 16, Luke writes that God actually used Paul to help start this church in Philippi. So Paul would have been well acquainted with the fact that, yes, the Spirit is working and active among this little body of believers. But Paul goes on in verse 2. He says, complete my joy. Paul's saying here, listen, Philippians, the Spirit is indeed working among you. He's active in you, but you must continue. You must carry out the good work that God has begun in you. Paul exhorts the Philippian church to strive to reach their full potential. He says, don't be torn apart by bickering. Don't be torn apart by disagreement. Don't let disunity boil over. Rather, be of the same mind, have the same love. And as the Philippian church strives for perfect unity, Paul says, his joy will be complete. So the goal is complete unity with one another by the Spirit of God. And so I have to ask a question for us today. Where is the Spirit of God calling us to continue to pursue unity? Brothers and sisters, we're going to have our differences. When we choose to do life together, in city groups, and huddles, as we just gather together as a church family on Sunday mornings, we will have our differences and they will come out. But we have something greater in us. We each have the Spirit of God living inside of us. We may wrong one another, hurt one another, sin against one another, but Jesus calls us. He says, don't just be reconciled to me, be reconciled to one another. And that means that we might have to have difficult conversations with people in our church family. We may need to make that tough phone call. We may need to have that hard conversation with someone to confess that we're hurt, to confess that we're bitter or we're jealous. We will need to pray our guts out and ask God for strength to have these hard conversations interactions with one another, but it's worth it because in doing so, we pursue unity. So Paul says, he says, pursue unity. Don't grow discouraged. Don't grow complacent. Keep short accounts with each other. Be quick to forgive each other. Lean in and push forward in being of one mind, having the same mind and the same love. Let's move on. Verses 3 and 4 go on to show us that if unity is going to be a reality among us, it will require us to embrace humility. Let's read verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul starts with a command here. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of conceit. And another word for conceit is pride. Do nothing out of pride. Paul warns us of the immense danger of pride. You see, friends, pride blinds us to reality. Pride pulls us in close, and it whispers tantalizing untruths about our identity to us. So, you can see why Paul would say in these verses, cast it off. Do nothing out of selfish pride. But that leads us to ask the question, what is pride? Pride is the mask we use to cover up our deepest wounds and our biggest insecurities. In pride, we tell ourselves that we're strong because in reality, we're terrifyingly afraid of our own weakness. In pride, we try to convince everyone that we're beautiful, that we're well put together because deep down our hearts feel so messy and ugly. We boast in the value of our possessions and our accomplishments to desperately try to cover up the fact that we feel like there's so little that's praiseworthy or lovely in our own soul. At our core, we operate in pride because we feel like there's something lacking in our soul. There's something lacking about our identity. We think, if people really knew who I was, without my accomplishments, without my good track record, without what I can offer them, then no one would find me lovable. No one would find me beautiful or valuable or worth the time. See, pride is sinister. Pride is sinister because it not only allows us to lie and deceive others, pride allows us to lie and deceive ourselves. The most wicked thing about pride is that we begin to genuinely believe that the mask that we've put on is our true complexion. Pride is the lie that we hide behind. It's the mask we put on to cover the fact that we feel like we're not enough. Pride, at its core, is a lie that we believe about our own identity. So, You can see why Paul would say in verse 3, do nothing out of conceit. Do nothing out of selfish pride. So friends, today this might be the most important thing you hear me say. We need to cast off the lies of pride and define ourselves as people radically loved by God. Jesus sees you and loves you just as you are in all your messiness, in all your brokenness. Jesus calls us out of the dark. He tells us, he says, take off the mask, step into the light. Jesus looks at us, he beckons us to confess to ourselves and to others our true identity, that we are perfectly seen, perfectly known, and wildly accepted by God. We are accepted by the Father, and because we're accepted by Him, we can accept ourselves. When we have Jesus, friends, there's nothing lacking in our lives. When we have Jesus, we have everything, which means that we don't need to fear being seen for who we really are. We can let loose our fears and our insecurities and our uncertainties with ourselves, with God, with others. So friends, can I call us out of hiding this morning? Can I call us to stop hiding from Jesus, to stop hiding from ourselves and from each other? Let me ask you seriously, really think about this. Is there anyone in your life that you can take off the mask with? Is there anyone in your life that you can take off the mask with? We are called to take off the mask before God and before each other. And that's why you hear us say over and over in our church, you have to be a part of a city group. You have to be a part of a, a small group of believers who, like you, are willing to take off the mask and be real with each other. This is what city group, and we also have another function called a huddle, which is a smaller, more intimate group of people pursuing Jesus together. But we have to pursue Jesus in authenticity and transparency with one another. That's what City Group is about. That's what huddle is about. We need to take off the mask with each other. So why not start by taking off our masks in City Group? Why not start by taking off our masks in huddle? You know what? It's really scary to do that, isn't it? I don't want to confess my own insecurities to my mother, let alone people that I I barely know or haven't known for very long. But the only thing keeping us from taking off the mask, from walking in the light alongside others, if I'm honest with myself, it's my pride. The moment that we step from darkness to light The moment that we're finally honest with ourselves, that we're finally honest with others, the moment we take off the mask of pride and let ourselves be seen for who we really are, it's called humility. Humility is seeing ourselves for who we really are. As children radically loved and accepted by God, and because we're radically loved and accepted by God, we can, in return, radically love and accept others. There's a quote from St. Augustine. He says that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And when we understand our true identity, when we understand the identity that God has given us, we're able to find rest and come to peace with ourselves. And when I come to peace with myself, when I realize the identity that God has given me, And come to peace with it. I can stop thinking about myself. I can finally turn my eyes off of myself. My own anxieties. My own insecurities. I can finally breathe. I can finally accept who God has made me to be. And in that I'm able to look outward. I'm able to look to others. Paul goes on to explain. The second half of verse 3. He says this. In humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul's saying here that humility begins when we start to look less and less to our own interests and more and more to the interests of others. So what does it look like to do that? What does it look like to consider the needs of others more significant than our own? I think there's about a thousand things that we could say to that this morning, but just if I just had to name a couple things, I think it means that we're happy to give away the spotlight to someone else. We're content to labor behind the scenes, unseen and unappreciated, feeling unnoticed, while the people around us are noticed, championed and appreciated. In other words, it means that we deny ourselves and delight when others flourish. It means that we love others. It means that we take on the heart of Jesus, as Mark 10 says, who came not to be served, but to serve. And I think just for a second, I need to pause here to help us notice what this verse doesn't say. It doesn't say, only look to the interests of others And never consider your own needs. It doesn't say, make sure you see yourself as being totally insignificant in comparison to others. No, this verse does not mean that you can be taken advantage of, or harmed, or abused, or walked over in any way. These verses tell us simply to look first to the interests of others without neglecting our own needs or our own well-being. Moving on, in verse 5, Paul goes on to tell us that this casting off of selfish ambition and conceit and this putting on of humility, it's an already accomplished reality that we must choose to live out together. It's an already accomplished reality that we must choose to live out together. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which what? is yours. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, we need to hear this. Paul knew we needed to hear this, because sometimes it's just easy to get discouraged. We feel defeated in our battle for humility. We feel owned by selfish ambition and pride. But Paul's reminding us here, we don't have to do it alone. We aren't alone in our battle for humility. Paul here tells us that the war is already won. You have cast off selfish ambition and conceit. You have embraced humility. It's yours in Christ. The Spirit of God is actively and powerfully working through you to bring these realities out in your life. But you have to choose to live it out more and more. You have to bring to completion what Jesus has already made a reality and fully equipped and empowered you to do in your life. You have to actively embrace humility. And so Paul goes on in this passage to remind us of our second point for today. Our second point. If we're going to embrace humility, we need to look to the one who perfectly embodies humility. We must look to the one who perfectly embodies humility. And let's look at verses 6 through 8 together. It says, Look to Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So we need to point out here in verse 6 that when Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he isn't saying that Jesus, God the Son, isn't equal with God the Father. See, we know that God is Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know that each member, each person of the Trinity is fully God. So Jesus is fully God. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus, in his incarnation, that is, Jesus, when he, when he chose to put on skin and bones and become a baby boy and walk and live among us, in his incarnation, Jesus kept all of the privileges of being God, but he chose not to exercise those privileges. So God kept, or Jesus kept all the privileges of being God, but he chose not to exercise those privileges. One of my favorite characters of all time is Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. What you start to learn about Aragorn if you watch the Lord of the Rings movies or read the book is that Aragorn is kind of like a modern day version of a Navy SEAL. He's able to survive outdoors. He can fight off hordes of enemies. He's basically just an all-around tough dude. What we start to learn about Aragorn as the story goes on is that although Aragorn is kind of this outdoorsy, traveling renegade of a man, kind of a soldier, his real identity is that he's actually the king of the whole land. He's the rightful heir of the entire land. Only a few people throughout the movies know that Aragorn is a king and not just the traveling, mysterious ranger that he appears to be. Aragorn was the king, but he chose not to exercise his rights as the king. Rather than live in the lap of luxury, rather than than live among kings, Aragorn chose to walk and live and serve among common folk. And in the same way, Jesus maintained all of his kingness, All of his godness, even though he put on skin and bones and walked among us. Although Jesus was fully God, he emptied himself of the privileges of his godness. He chose to live and walk and serve among common folk, just like you and I. Notice that Jesus doesn't just empty himself a little either. Jesus goes so far as to empty himself to the point of being a servant. He goes so far as to empty himself to the point of dying. Let's think for just a second how scandalous this is. I'm going to give an illustration to help us, to help us think about this. Jeff Bezos is currently the richest man in the world. Okay, he's he's the, the founder and owner of Amazon and he's said to be worth about $121 billion. Okay. Let's picture for just a moment that Jeff Bezos emails you, and he says, hey, I have a job for you at Amazon. I want, you, I, want to, I want to fly you out to Amazon headquarters, and I want you to interview for this role. So you go, sweet. You hop on a plane, you fly in, you head into Amazon headquarters, you're getting ready for your interview, and, and, and before you do, you walk into the bathroom to straighten your shirt, and you, you pause for a second because someone is in the bathroom, they're on their hands and knees, and they're scrubbing the dirty toilets. And you, you pause, you stop for a second, and shock starts to spread across your face because you realize that Jeff Bezos is on his hands and knees cleaning filthy toilets. You would be shocked. You would be, what in the world is happening? Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. He's worth billions of dollars. He probably has a multi-million dollar megaplex on the top of Amazon headquarters, his own office, his own personal space, but he's down on the bottom level among common folk And not only is he mingling with common folk, he's in the bathroom on his hands and knees scrubbing dirty toilets. This would absolutely shock us. But friends, this is what Jesus did on an infinitely more profound, on an infinitely more shocking level. The God of the universe became a servant and scrubbed dirty toilets among us. The holy God who lived in unapproachable light comes to earth and gets his hands dirty among us. The reality that Jesus came down from heaven should shock us infinitely more than seeing Jeff Bezos scrub dirty toilets. Verse 8 tells us this about Jesus. It says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So Jesus, the creator of the universe, the God over everything, he created every law of physics, every law of science and biology, the one who spoke everything into existence. He takes on a created body and he perfectly fulfills each and every law of God. The only one who never had anything to prove proves his obedience to the Father by going to the cross and dying. And in dying, he perfectly fulfills the demands of the law of God by offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. And that's why Paul goes on in verses 9 through 11 to write this. He says, therefore, in other words, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, because of Jesus' perfect humility and obedience, the Father has exalted him to the place of supremacy. As verse 9 puts it, he's been given the name that's above every name. Because Jesus perfectly bowed in humility to the Father, verse 10 says, everyone will bow their knees to him. Because Jesus in humility perfectly confessed the words of his Father, every mouth will confess, verse 11 says, that Jesus is Lord. In Jesus we see perfect humility embodied. And we have to look to him as we seek to choose humility, as we seek to embrace humility. As we look to him, as we contemplate his humility, that he would lay down his privileges as God, that he would put on skin and bones and walk among us, that he would come not to be served, but to serve, and that he would lay down his life to save selfish, prideful people like you and I, we can't help but stand amazed. We can't help but be changed. Praise God that Jesus chose humility. So it's, it's obvious for us this morning. We can clearly see the humility of Jesus. But if we're honest, humility can seem a lot more vague and hard to grab onto for us today in our everyday lives. It seems like something, humility kind of feels like something more that we should feel rather than something that we do. And so I want to encourage us this morning, if you don't feel humility, if you're not feeling humble, can I encourage you to start this morning just by acting in humility? Can you start by acting in humility and pray for God to transform your heart? In light of that, I want to end today by just giving us some practical things that we can do, some practical things that we can do in order to choose, to act in humility. The first thing I want to encourage us to do is to serve. As we choose humility, we must serve. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that Jesus emptied himself. He took the role of a servant. So friends, the call for us today is to empty ourselves. The call for us is to humbly serve others, husbands and wives in the room. Would you empty yourself in serving your spouse? Not just giving what you think you owe to the other person, but actually emptying yourself in service. Parents, would you serve your children? Not by putting them in more activities, not by buying them the newest gadget, but would you serve your children with your presence? Would you serve your children with your intentionality to disciple them, to lead them to know Jesus? Singles in the room. Would you empty yourself in serving your friends? Would you empty yourself in serving the people living with you? Would you empty yourself in serving your coworkers? By the end of the day, we should feel spent because of the way we've served. We should go to bed tired because of the way that we've emptied ourselves. And friends, we all have an opportunity to serve this morning by serving one another. We have an opportunity to serve our church family. We need people to pour themselves out here in this place by serving our kids. We need people to pour themselves out by serving coffee, handing a fresh cup of coffee to someone as they walk in to feel welcomed. We have so many different ways and needs for people to serve, to love one another in humility in our church family. And I just want to say this morning, if you consider this your church home and you've never served, can right now be the moment that you choose to walk in humility by serving. I just want to encourage you, if you're in here and you've never served before, it's really simple. We have connection cards in the back of the chairs. Would you take one, fill one out, and say, yeah, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to take a step in choosing humility by serving and loving my church family. Let's serve one another in this way. What better way to take a practical step in choosing humility than to serve the people in your church family? And the second and final way that I want to encourage us this morning to choose humility is just simply to pray. When we pray, we're declaring to God and to ourselves that we aren't able to do it in our own strength. Every time we pray, we're putting to death our pride and our self-sufficiency because we go to God and we ask Him to do what only He can do. If you're in the room this morning... And you feel like you don't have the strength, you don't have the power to walk in humility, you're where you need to be. You don't have the strength, you don't have the power, but God does. We have to confess in humility our weakness and His power. We have to confess our inability and His sufficiency, our brokenness and His ability to make us whole. When we pray, we exercise humility in a profound way. So why not start by praying on your way into work in the morning? Or why not start by praying with your wife or your kids or your roommates before bed at night? Why not start by praying during your lunch break? Whatever the case... Would we find some way to begin a, rather, a regular rhythm of prayer? Choose humility by consistently engaging in prayer, knowing that God gives us the ability to live this out, that he's with us and in us and working through us. So friends, we're called to choose humility. Instead of keeping life's humbling circumstances at arm's length, we're called rather to embrace humility. We're called to do nothing out of ambition, nothing out of selfish pride, but rather in humility to consider others more significant than ourselves. And when we're tempted to give up in the midst of hardship in pursuing humility, we have to look to the one who embodied humility perfectly and realize that it's by his power and his strength working in us that we can persevere in it. And so today we have a chance to respond to Jesus and to remember his humility and laying down his life for us by taking communion. And so if you're a believer in this room, if you've accepted, if, you, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, you've been saved, this moment is for you. And so uh, in just a, a minute, I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up. And we're going to have a station here in front and here in the back. And I encourage you just to take a minute. To consider the humility of Jesus, that He would lay down his life to save selfish, prideful people like you and me, and to remember His sacrifice, and just to just inwardly to examine our own hearts, to ask for help, to ask for forgiveness where we need it. And so in just a minute, uh, I'll pray, and then I invite you, as you feel willing or able, um, to come and, and take the elements. And then I actually ask you, let's take it back to our seat. And then in just a minute, I'll come up and uh, I'll instruct us to take it together as a family. So with that, let's pray.